1: Hello and welcome to Off the Beaten Track podcast. How you doing? It's another week, therefore it's another episode. And today's episode was such a great chat. Uh, I sat down with Andy Cairns of Therapy. Um, we'd done this during lockdown over Zoom, uh, and it was an amazing chat. Um, I mean, we discussed so much of the kind of the the, uh, the early punk stuff that he was exposed to in in Belfast during the Troubles and such, going to those early gigs. I mean, the nightclub experience that Andy went to is just off the scale amazing. Uh, and that that's something you're going to just be blown away by. It just sounds like the greatest club ever. Um, I mean, w- when we start talking record shops, we start talking about good vibrations. And uh, I mean... I won't tell you any more because it's, it's, it's an amazing chat and he's, and he's an absolutely top fella as well. Um, you're going to love this episode. Um, before we get on with it, um, I just want to say uh, thanks to um, Scroobies, Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network um, and a huge thanks to 76 for producing this podcast. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's having to work super hard at the moment, 76 producing his podcast because so many of them are done remotely and so sometimes, you know, you get little glitches on the on the recording side of things, when using you know your Zooms and Skypes, and he's he's doing a stellar job to ensure that you still get a really nice sounding podcast. So thanks, seventy six. Um, okay, well look, um, if this is your first time listening to Off the Beaten Track, then um, please go and explore the back catalogue because there's about 120 or so episodes with some of your favourite musicians, producers, DJs, actors, comedians. So. Go and have a rummage around in the archives and see if there's anything you find that, um, that tickles your fancy. Um, better still, subscribe. And then each week, um, another episode just pops up on your listening device. Um, and yeah, and, and if you want even more, then i have a Patreon page. And so you can support the podcast over there. Uh, and i put a standalone episode up on there each week as well. You can find out about everything at com. Let's take a breath. Okay. Right, let's get back to the episode. Please enjoy Off the beaten and Track podcast with the wonderful Andy Cairns. Listen up. I've only got another new sponsor. Egg Fried. It's this super cool clothing label. And if you're into sort of skating and street art and gigging and, and kind of like really cool art and throwing a little bit of Asian culture and, and the designer's kind of weird sense of humor in the mix, then you're pretty much there with the wonderful world that is eggfried.com. Now they do these amazing, punchy kind of graphic tees, hoodies, and sweatshirts, beautiful art prints, as well as this. They have a denim range, all handmade in-house, all supporting the slow fashion movement. Not only that, they've given you a discount code, 10% off when you head over to eggfried.com. Just use the code EggSalad, E-W-G-S-A-L-A-D. Save 10%. Go and get lost in the world of egg fried. Also, they've got a new kids' range, and it's called Small Fried, and it's super cool, super cute. Um, and again, it's all over there in this wonderful world. Go and get involved at eggfried.com. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network with me, Stu, with Whipping. Okay, we're recording, and sitting opposite me today via the means of Zoom – in, uh, in in lockdown is Andy Cairns. Hello. Hello, Stu. How you doing? I'm good, thank you, mate. Um well, I really appreciate you giving up your time today and and uh-huh. having a having a chat about tunes with me. Um, but before we get on to the um the, the, the playlist, I just want to know how you found the last couple of months um, as a
3: as, as as a human being and as a creative. Well as a as a human being I've um I've, I've, I was actually all right until about two weeks ago, and that was the first time I had a bit of a wobble. Um, I'm very lucky. I mean, I've got – my wife's able to work from home. My son, he came back from uni just just the minute the pandemic started to happen. So my family's here. But um, so I was it was all right. I've got a really good routine. You know, I do certain things to make sure that I've got some kind of structure because, yeah, I mean, we would have played – Dozens and dozens of shows. At this point, we'd have been in the rehearsal studio. We probably would have been demoing tracks. Um, so, you know, I just make sure I get up every day, go for a run and make time in the evening for the family. As a creative, it's been brilliant because I've been playing more guitar than usual. It's funny, you know, as a touring musician, one of the kind of paradoxes is that you don't actually get a chance to play your instrument apart from the two hours you're on stage in the evening yeah. or at the check because we're doing so much time traveling, checking into hotels, getting to the gig, whatever. So, like, uh, it's given me loads of time to go in and, you know, do things like say, oh, right, today I'm going to write a new riff. I'm going to look at this old song we haven't played in ages, and I'm going to look at learning somebody else's guitar part that looks a bit tricky. It might be really good to get, you know, that might teach me something new. But yeah. so that's good. The only thing that I've found um, what I want to try and avoid is writing the Pandemic album. <laughs> <laughs> nothing will date more than the present you know and what i mean the, as someone that writes i have to be careful that what i say now doesn't sound horrendously dated if somebody i still want yeah. if i write a song i want people still to be able to listen to it in five years 10 years 15 years time not have it done as you know that's therapy's you know virus album so, yeah. so I mean, there's ways that we can approach it and that's quite interesting you know with a, um Lockdown, you know, without having to sort of write something like that. It's, um, which would be really easy to do with a band of our kind of, you know, musical yeah. uh, background. That's a bit of a challenge, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. I mean, I haven't, I've talked to other people, I've talked to Michael and Neil in the band, and they're actually, they've, I'm lucky my son's, um, you know, he's grown up, he's at uni, uh, he can pretty much fend for himself, but they've got two very young kids each, and they're having to do the whole homeschooling thing. Yeah. so i don't have to, i'm lucky i don't have to do that so i can get up go for a run and then go out into my man shed and plug in my guitar and, and spend three or four hours out there they don't really yeah. have a luxury because they're constantly they, they're being a school teacher during the day and not mm. me in the afternoon and then you know they're a storyteller in the evening yeah so, um so that, then they're also trying to squeeze in rehearsing and writing material so so yeah. i'm okay
1: okay well you talked about um playing riffs and stuff uh, a moment ago so um, that's, uh, that's that's a nice tenuous link to um to, to the first track um, so I'm going to ask you Andy what uh, you regard as the song with the greatest ever intro
3: it's another girl another planet are the only ones and what a it's, record well, it's, it's an amazing record and it's like you know whenever I just really get into music I mean I discovered music when I was 6 or 7 it was the first thing I ever got passionate about before football before movies before art, you know, before girls, <laughs> and it was it was music, and I'd always liked punk, and, and I really got into punk. And guitar solos were the enemy. So you know, um, some I'd read about the only ones being this great punk band, and I sort of came into punk through Amones and through the buzzcocks. So it was very much fast bar chords. There wasn't a, there was no guitar solo, and you know, whenever I first heard another girl, another planet. It sounded, it could have been Dire Straits, the intro. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and I don't mean that as a ballad because the first Dire Straits album's incredible. Mm. But it was, it was like, uh, oh, can, can I actually like this, or does this have to be something I listen yeah. to in secret? Because yeah. there's such a, a blatantly brazen guitar solo. But I went with it, and I, I, it's one of those I've never met anyone that doesn't like that song. And It's, it's, it's got, an
1: incredible record.
3: Yeah, and it's it's brilliant, and you know, I was very very lucky. In 1994, at the Shepherds Bush Empire, we had uh, Pete Perret join us on stage, and we did that song. Oh, so got, amazing! And I got to meet him and hang out with him afterwards. Um, but it's the best intro of a song because it's got everything. It starts off, it sort of creeps in, and it's got that little tight chuggy riff, so you think, "Yeah, well, oh, this is this could be this is just going to be a kind of punk kind of new wave stomper." Yeah, and then. There's a guitar slide, and all of a sudden it goes stratospheric. Yeah, and then it comes in; it just drops into this fragile little voice, telling this story of kind of existentialist uh, love and cosmic romance. <laughs> and then, whenever it doesn't get any new, so and then there's a there's an even better guitar solo in the middle as well. Yeah, but I think as regards to the intro; it was just it just it keeps building and building and building, and it's not plastic, yeah. and that's really difficult to do. Anyone could do that Wagnerian kind of bombast and, you know, build up yeah. rocks, but there's, there's just all these little bits and pieces that, that drop in the sound field that make it so brilliant.
1: So I always ask um, musicians this question, Andy, and um, uh, in, in the way that you approach um, writing records now, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about the intro. Mm-hmm. Um, has that changed over the years in the way that nowadays um, – the way that people listen to music is far different from how they would have listened to therapy when, when you first broke through Um, nowadays with streaming services and things like that. There's so many distractions going, you might like this, you might like this. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, do you ever sort of consider the intro being something to grab them straight away and try and sort of hold their attention? Is that still in the mindset of of you as a musician now? And, And was it then? Yeah,
3: yeah, I mean, it's always been
1: important. Sorry, that's a really loaded question there, Andy. Sorry, but no, no, do, you, do you get where I'm going with yeah, it?
3: I mean, I know exactly what you mean. It's a bit like the way young grime artists know that mm. the majority of people listen to their, their music on a mobile phone. So the opening riff has to be in the really top register so that if they're at a bus stop or they're with their mates outside, that really cuts through and it cuts yeah. through like that. And then I suppose in our day, I mean, a good example of that from our end of things is there's two songs you can think of off the bat. One of them is arguably our best-known song called "Screamager," and uh, it's it was meant to be our homage to stiff little fingers in the undertones. It was like a yeah. pop, not pop punk. I don't want to use that term, but it was like Ulster all, punk done by you know a modern issue at the time band. And initially, with Chris Sheldon on board, and he knew what we were trying to do. We said we want to write like an update of the stuff we listened to as kids. It's about growing up and being a teenager in Northern Ireland. But originally, that anyone that knows that song, the intro is really simple. It goes boom, 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 boom. Then straight in with a riff. Yeah. That's not how it used to go. It used to go. <laughs> brruh, 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 brruh. Like, and then and then in. And uh, Chris Sheldon, kind of the producer at the time, he said, uh, so you want this to be like a Northern Irish pop single? And we go Yeah. Yeah. But well, he goes, Teenage kicks goes blah and blap and straight in. So yeah. maybe if you can get therapy's equivalent of blah and blah and get rid yeah. of the <coughs> Cygnus X-1, kind of, you know, like... I, I, like.
1: I want to hear the prog version of Scream major there. <laughs> yeah, no,
3: that, that's one version. And the other one is whenever we had a song called Nowhere, which is another well-known song of ours, it's got this little um, really simple guitar riff. that goes, na-na-na. Like, it's meant to sound like police Yeah, um, And initially the song didn't have that. It, it's very similar to Another Girl, Another Planet in the chord structure. It's very kind of hot, cold, hot, cold, uh, melancholy guitar progression. And at the start it just went straight in. And like and we were thinking about it needs an intro. And we tried several things. And I was I just happened to be listened to, but it was Happenstance. I was listening to Police on My Back for the Clash. Yeah. And they've got they've got this little guitar. It sounds like a guitar siren as well. So I just thought, why don't I try something like that? And I just went to the yeah. tonic chord of the song that was there, and I thought if I put these two fingers here. And I, one of those things it was so simple, I literally said, look. This is you're going to laugh at this, and everyone in the room went, "That's it." But it was that. I just thought I can't actually bring this to the room because it's so ridiculous. But um, it just was was so memorable. But that was important. So
1: so was radio a consideration then?
3: Um, I'm trying to think. The only thing about radio I remember was the language thing and none of our singles and we didn't deliberately do it scream or nor didn't have any profanities in them but that was, that was just the way the songs were written mm. i do remember when we took trouble Gum in north america they really really liked the song called knives which is the opening track on trouble gum and it drops the f-bomb several times but they they it wasn't like they were taking us around to kind of indie stations in america and they were going it's a bit too heavy but a couple of the mountains in North America loved it, but they said, well, we can't play our favorite tracks called Knives, but it's got the F-bomb all over its way, and M Records America did this version where they're, I'm going to get... And that's what they do. And they played it, and I remember being on tour in America and going, you're listening to such and such, one on six and this is from Iron Therapy. And it was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be well. Not. We'd have been, why didn't they just release something else But they rather than. And there's so many profanities in that song that the whole just is just like Beaker from The Muppet Show singing it. Oh,
1: brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Well, for track two, Andy, um, I'm going to ask you the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please.
3: Um, It was Buzzcocks, Ever Fallen In Love With Someone You Shouldn't Have. And there'd been, I mean, I remember the first music I really remember hearing was glam rock. Because we were were allowed to watch from the age of about four or five. I think Top of the Pops. whatever night it was. We were allowed to stay up a bit later and watch it. Because I used to always sing the songs the next day, which my mum and dad thought was hilarious. And there is a tape in the house of me singing this town in Big Enough for the both of us by Sparks, (laughs) the (laughs) four-year-old. Which my mom, that's an ambitious <laughs> song as well my mum still has <laughs> and, and I like that but all these things that were fun you know, my mum had, mom had the seven inch diamonds are forever but she had um, that um, there was lots of stuff around the house that I liked but the first one that I emotionally connected with was eight, so 8 13 thirteen. I was 13 years of age and I was and I actually remember where I was I was having my breakfast with my old brother about to go to school and Radio 1 played the bus cox every fall and at that age of 13 I'd gone to secondary education. I didn't know where I was going to go in life. I was beginning to grow up a little bit. You know, hormones were kicking in, and I remember hearing that song. And I'd never, I'd never heard the Buzzcocks before. There was a lad in school a year above me called John Gray, and he had Buzzcocks on the back of his school bag, and I heard it, and I thought, I thought, because John Gray was a punk, and I thought Buzzcocks were meant to be a punk band, so I really liked this record, and I couldn't get the melody out of my head. All- and I went into school and the course went on. tapped Ray the shoulder and said I thought Buzzcocks were a punk man he was, yeah they are a punk man and he, he told me all about them so time, I think I managed to get that record a few weeks later on and then I started getting obsessed with the Buzzcocks but that was, for some reason I think it's the chord structure the, um, the melody and there's something about Pete Shelley's God bless him, some of it, his delivery was yeah, just so it was it was so nervous and anxious, and it wasn't bombastic. And, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, all the stuff I grew up listening to, like Glam Rock was always on TV, I always thought, well, I can't be like that person because that person, like, if you look at Elton John and Mark Bolton and David Boy, you thought, well, those people weren't born in a semi-detached house in the state and county Antrim. Mean, those people arrived on a spacecraft from Mars. Obviously, yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <No. laughs> And that, but whereas someone like Pete Shelley, and then I think a few weeks after I heard that on the radio, they were on top of the pops, and they were wearing what they looked like the people that kind of sat in our upper sixth common room at school. You know, there was there was loads of like woolly jumpers and little yeah. big shirts and bowl head haircuts, and it what so I just thought, well, I can kind of get where that's coming from. Yeah.
1: So you, you you've mentioned top tops. Did, did therapy get on
3: top of the pops? Yeah, I think we were on it some like seven times. So
1: as yeah. I'm I'm always really curious to know, like for for you know, I'm sure like, you know, as you mentioned, you know, you've lads up late to watch it, it was a the most one of the most important nights of the week for me was 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 when Top of the Pops was on because it was the only time you got to see your pop stars. Yeah. And so how was it for you growing up watching that and then I, I guess let's talk about the first time you went on Top of the Pops. Was it everything and more or was it kind of well, I'm just curious to know what it was like.
3: The first time we went on, it was scream major, and the, and we were from a hardcore punk background. And there was two schools of thought. People like myself and Michael thought, well, that's where we saw the Buzzcocks, that's where we saw the Dam. UK subs were on top of the pops. That's we, right. Never we on top of the pops. And then there was the other people who went well. The Clash never did top of the pops. Yeah. And they, they were the more hardcore ones. What are you doing? That's for? the Clash never did it. Yeah. Um, and I spoke like what well, luckily for us, we were from the, the former camp and we had no problem doing it. Uh, and I, I was very nervous because it was like, um, it was like, you know, they bust in all the people from near wherever the place was nearby, they bust in all these young girls and guys. It was like two or three buses of youth club people. And literally, they, you're, they're there when you're doing your rehearsal during the day. And there's all the pop bands on and they're all dancing. And then we go to run through it, and everyone in the audience yeah. is just looking at each other like one. What's, the, what's this? You know, like he doesn't look. He doesn't look like a fox. I mean, the drummer doesn't speak. These players were like. What on earth is this meant to be? not What the hell doesn't like? I was very self conscious about that. But a, a couple of a couple of stories I do remember about. And at the very first Top of the Box. um, I, I used to be a massive fan of the Skids. Big Country and I remember going to see Big Country opening for U2 in Dublin and I went the whole way down just to see Big Country and afterwards it was the only pop star I'd ever met up to this point, Stuart Adamson wasn't, he had done a set which was brilliant and he was out walking through the crowd I thought he can't walk through the crowd you know he's he's, Stuart Adamson he doesn't walk through the crowd like a mere model and I remember going over nervous. and he said that that was really brilliant and he shook my hand and said oh thanks very much and I was made up because he wasn't rude, he was really polite yeah. Um big the first time we did Top of the Pops, Big Country were on it. Oh really? I was standing there like standing there getting my guitar strap on and there was a rap in the door and Stuart Adamson came and kind of So I just want to say I really like your band. And I really wanted to say I've actually met you before. I didn't. And I was like, Oh my god. And then that was I remember that, so that that was really, really funny. But it was um That's fantastic. Um, but it's it's bizarre because you know East Enders used to share the canteen, so like you would you would be given a food voucher, and you would go and get your food in the canteen, and the be the cast of East Enders would be standing in the queue with you. And you know we're from Northern Ireland, we're from a little town in Northern Ireland, Larnan, Ballyclare, in Northern Ireland. It's like yeah, we don't have any kind of that sort of that sort of calm collectedness bands in London and stuff. Like yeah. we'd be like just the in I mean we did it I think we did it seven times and it got easier every time and then by the end of yeah. it was just like but you know it, it was the very very first time we definitely feel, felt like we didn't belong um yeah but we were glad we did it and every, everyone kind of it was that kind of thing where when we signed A&M Records m- mom and dad were always going you know we used to have a nice car we used to live in an apartment, you had a job, and now you're driving around with long hair and, you know, doing this thing, and the music's unlistenable. Why? <laughs> and I remember saying, we've signed to A&M Records, home of, like, Janet Jackson, the police, and... And and then whenever I phoned them up and said, oh, are on top of the pops, I don't think my dad believed me. He went, yeah, of course you are. Yeah. I went, no, no, we're on top of the So they all watched it. You know, so that was, so that was the only time, that I think, the entire, you know, family of ours... I acknowledge
1: you'd made it.
3: <laughs> well, that was it, yeah. And it was almost like, well, I don't really like the song much and I don't know what it's all about, but you know, it's on <laughs> <laughs> I'm full of broken. The
2: killer tricks, future weapons EP is out now. Listen on all the major streaming platforms, or find out where to buy in the show notes. It's badass, like me, the sexy robot lady. Ooh yeah baby. Right there. That's good.
1: Oh, brilliant. Just just to go back to um Ever Falling in Love as well. Um what what was the emotion you felt when you heard that?
3: I suppose the nearest I can feel was longing. And I can't I can't back. There was a longing in it. And I don't, you know, at that age, you don't really know what it is. You feel as if you're on the cusp of something. Sure. And you can't tell what it is. And I felt as if I don't know where it was. You know, I was curious about where I was going to be there was lads that were older than me that were able to go to gigs I wasn't able to go to gigs yet because I was 13 and they were coming in and having to go on the same bands like Stiff Little fingers and, and Rudy and the Outcast all these punk bands and they were able to go in and they would get in at 16 years of age and they'd come in with all these great war stories the next day and also you know I didn't really know what I wanted to be I discovered this thing as well always and that was I mean after the Buzzcocks that got I was a punk rocker then for for quite a few years because that kind of got me into it and it Ended up with the haircut and you know, the biker jacket and all this. But that was the first time I heard it. It was almost like it was a sense of longing and a sense of like uh, of you know, where, where do I belong in, in all those people. I, 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 honestly, no exaggeration. I remember exactly where it was and how I felt when I heard that song. It's, it's incredible. And it's like Another Girl on Another Planet. It's I could never tire of listening to that song. Yeah, totally. Yeah. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a
0: salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
2: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Hello. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's talk about the informative years For track three, Andy, the song reminds you of your time at school.
3: Mm-hmm. The Stranglers? Yeah. Well, the reason why I chose this was I'd started playing. I'd, I'd already played. I mean, whenever I was in primary school, I used to play the trombone. And because I played that when I went to secondary education in Ballyclare High School, I ended up being in the school orchestra. So I still, still did that. But at this point in time, when I discovered the Buzzcocks and the Ramones and Little Fingers and Rudy and all this, I thought I want to play an instrument and there was a guy down the road from us he was at school with me and his uncle had recently died and his uncle had been in like a covers band that played pubs and clubs in northern ireland and he had left a little Jetson bass guitar and a shalex six string guitar to them and none of them could play and and god bless him his mum would come up to our house one day and said andrew's a bit musical would he be interested in playing these taking these on so I, I got the bass and the guitar, and it was the bass I first liked because I really loved the Stranglers, and I loved um, John Jack Brunel. He looked brilliant. I liked Peter Hook. Yeah. Peter Hook and John Jack Brunel, but those records. So I got myself an that, and I used to work out all the bass lines. But the thing about the Stranglers was um, that they – I mean, they were so – they were really popular in Northern Ireland. I mean, really popular – and everybody loved them, and you know I got into the Buzzcocks and the only ones they weren't everyone's taste, but I it was like the Stranglers. I remember going to, the, to see them for the first time at the Ulster Hall in Belfast when I was I think fifteen, and there was teachers from my school there, there was the older kids from school there, you know it was like everyone was there, and I think that's what um, what what got got me totally in. That was whenever I first started playing music myself and having a sense of community, because I would go around to other people's houses at the musical instruments, and they would know Strangler's bass lines or Strangler's songs. Sure. And I, you know, so, you know, whenever I started jamming with other people, not everyone would have known the Buzzcocks, but everyone seemed yeah. to know the Strangler's. You
1: know? So, did you, enjoy, did you enjoy school?
3: No, I hated it. I absolutely did Why did you hate didn't. it? Well, I lived in a... I was, I've lived in a house and stayed at the top of the town, and I went to Ballyclare High School, which is a grammar school. And it was a Protestant grammar school, and it very much fancied itself as almost like the equivalent of an English private school. Even and it was very, they were very snobby, and they they made it very very clear from the moment I went there that the people there was me and two other kids from our estate that went to the school, and our parents. My my dad worked in a factory. This other guy's dad was a carpenter. The other one was a spark. They made it very, very good to us from the very start that we would be tolerated. And, you know, whenever we got to be 16, then we could bugger off and get get an apprenticeship somewhere. It was very much like that. And um, a lot of the other, other kids, healthier families, and they were treated in such a blatantly different way. And I knew there, was, there wasn't just kids from, where I, from my estate. There's kids, you know, nearby, 10 miles away that came to school especially it was in a state called Rathcool up the road, and there was a load of people from Rathcool came, and they got the same treatment. And um, so I, I found it very difficult. I rebelled quite a lot against it. I didn't like teachers. Um, you know, I, I found elements of the school quite sectarian. Although, in its defence, some of my best, you know, through two teachers, Mr. Thompson and Mr. Hazard, I discovered an absolute love for um, English literature, which has stayed with me to this day. And, um, you know, I met a lot of really, really good friends there, I expect that I'm still friends with now. I've got a few of them I'm still friends with now. I have a few of them i am still friends with now i did not like it at all. I really, really hated it. I didn't mind primary school as much, but I hated secondary education. And I, I stayed on, did my A-levels, and that was even worse because there was less people that stayed on for their A-levels, yeah. and it became even more elitist. So, I mean, I, I had a friend of mine that was in a band with, you know, we we discovered music together, and that was kind of the thing that we could is is that what you wanted to be at school?
1: Did you make your mind up that that a musician was something that? I mean, you mentioned earlier that you know that, that pop stars come like Bowie and that come from out of space. You know, did it did it feel like uh, you know somebody coming from a, a, a you know a, an estate in in Northern Ireland could? You know, did it feel attainable that you could become you know a, a successful musician?
3: No, I, I mean, I didn't. I, I used to play a lot in little bands that we had, but I'd made up my mind by the time I was seventeen because the big thing was Paul Weller famously was On Top of the Pots when he was 18. And then among all our friends, there was a thing that if you haven't made it by 18, then forget it. So I remember... That, being, was, that, was that the benchmark, Weller, well, bench, if you, if you that, like? Well, that was it, because a lot of people, it's like the Stranglers, everyone that I knew loved the jam and respected. Yeah. And even, I, I liked the jam a lot and respected Paul Weller. But the thing was, he was famous when he was 18. And I remember being in sixth year and going, well, I'm doing my A-levels next year. And after doing my A-levels, I'll be 19 in September. And Paul Weller, and I've done two albums by that time, so I may as well forget about it. So I remember <laughs> so, seriously, so I remember thinking, well, you know what? I'll always play the guitar because I love doing it, and I've got a bunch of yeah. mates. We've got mates peppered all around the town. One played the bass, one played the drums, and so we could run and hang out. So I sort of thought, well, I really love English, but, you know, I'm not going to go to uni. Uh, by the looks of it, you know, I, I like English and art. I did them for A level. But um, I was told by one of the careers um, advisors at school, well, why don't you get a career in journalism? Uh, go to Rupert Stanley College or something like that and I suppose what I had and I put the band thing to the back of my mind I sort of thought well what I'll do is I'll take a year out and then I'll look at going and doing journalism and then things began to change once I took the year out but you know certainly whenever I left school I'd never had it in my head that I was going to make it as a you know as a pop star or rock star that was never ever the point it was always well, I like doing this because it helps me playing the guitar it helps me with all this frustration I have and uh it was. The was way it was confident. Well, it didn't make me confident, but it was an escape. Where, where the state that I lived in, at the top of it was Ballyclare, which is a, a market town just outside Belfast. I lived at the top of state, which is quite, which is was back in the seventies, quite rough. But it was directly opposite a stone quarry, so if you were nervous in any way, anxious, three or four times a day there'd be explosive blasts. But add that to the fact you're also living in Northern Ireland in the 70s. <laughs> so, so the explosions never stopped. You know what I mean? So like, so, like, the only the only thing I had was I used to come home from school, put my headphones on really, really loud. And then after my tea, I would just play the guitar and had a little bass set up and a little, a little guitar set up. And that was kind of my escape. But I just, I always thought when I left school, I'd probably end up working in journalism or something like that. But I would always play the guitar as a hobby
1: okay track four andy
3: first song you remember buying from a record shop sweet blockbuster that was i bought that when it came out and i remember it's probably you know i remember seeing it on top of the pops and being totally shocked you know and it's but like i think what was one of them dressed like i don't know, like the gestapo or
1: something as well i think no, i think it, it was it that was the, the the guy that um i can't remember his name um who passed away a couple of weeks ago okay. uh, from this suite no he was he had a policeman's helmet on i believe <laughs> that's
3: it, that's it, and
1: yeah. a little mustache if i'm right that's because right. the camera kept sort of panning past him and he looked like that he had that kind of look of the dude from step uh,
3: not steps at sparks yeah that's like, it, that's it yeah. yeah i used to get but i remember um I remember loving that song and we were in, uh, we were in North Belfast with my dad because he's, he's originally from the sort of North Belfast area and we passed a record shop called Graham's and they had Blockbuster in the window and I said to him oh I love that song and he went well do you want it and I went yeah you buy me it and he went my dad was trying to and he says well tell you what if I give you the money you go and buy it and I said I don't want to go to the record shop and he went no you go back <laughs> and my dad actually is a lifeless and gave me the money and I went in, stood in the queue and then asked for Blockbuster by the suite and took How it How old would you and... have been? I would have been so. I think I think I was seven. I think it was 1972, So i So I was six or seven years of age, and I still have that. I still have that record, and I absolutely mm-hmm. love it. And I mm-hmm. think, I think that's why I like punk because it's got that big crunchy power chord and it's got a stomp. So you know, if you, it's not a million miles away from the guitar sound on Nevermind the Bollocks. Yep. You know, and stuff that I like later on, like the Ramones. Song, it's very, it's very simple and very chordy and very catchy. But I still think it's a brilliant song, um, and I, I remember I've only ever seen them once, and that was in the nineties. And I don't know what even lineup that was. It was a sold out Olympia Theatre in Dublin, and I went there cynical, thinking, "Well, I'll probably leave and go to the pub after yeah. three times. It was amazing. That <laughs> it's great. In the but no, I love that record, and it's um, yeah. I bought it in Graham's Records in Belfast.
1: How, how important did well you know as, as you know in in your later years uh, you know into your teens and. And and upwards from there. How important did you know the the, the record shops become for you?
3: Oh, they were everything. I mean, bearing in mind that this was Belfast. So, like g- going into Belfast, if I wanted a record, there was a record shop in Ballyclare called Burt McCormick's, which would sell punk records that had charted. So you know, if you if it was something like Banana Splits by the Dickies or Message in a Bottle, yeah. like place you could get it because it was in the charts. But if you wanted something on Good Vibes Records or something by the birthday party or, you know, Alien Sex Fiend or something else, mm. you had to go into Good Vibrations or Caroline Music in Belfast. Yeah. So we would always, from the age of 14, we would go in once we had money to those places. Um, and, that you know, we'd go into Good Vibrations and Terry Hooley would be there. there would be, like, Getty from the Outcast. You know, we knew all these people from, like, the local media and TV. Yeah. But we'd buy records there. Uh, and the other one was Caroline Music, a guy called Angus. And that was also what was great about them. I mean, Kerry really in Good Vibrations. Was, was, he was cheeky and stuff like that, and he would give you good advice. And Angus was the main guy for us because Angus had such a, an amazing taste in music. So, like, you would go in and say, I remember the very first Husker do record I bought. I bought. I read a review of it in Sounds Magazine, and by this point it released three albums. And Angus went, Well, what do you have? And he gave you this break, and I thought, You know, this is kind of pop one, and this is a sprawling double masterpiece. And and he'd tell you, So, hey, but they were really, really important. And I mean, it's it's hard to believe now, but when therapy started and we pressed up our own seven inch single, Carline Music actually had a section for local musicians where you would basically, we, we pressed up a thousand copies of a single to sell at concerts. We brought one into Angus at Carline Music in Belfast. And we were so proud because he went okay, and he played it, and we were all there. We're going, oh God, what he doesn't like it, and he played it, and then he put it up in the section, which was local music, and that was incredible for us. And you know, that was like, um, it was where you would go and hang out as well. You know, we you would, I mean, I'm sure at the time we were a lot younger than I. I'm sure it was really annoying because not yeah. myself and the other band members. Whenever I was growing up, but yeah, so they were the two places really, great, good vibrations in Caroline music, and you had to it. Yeah. I think it was it was a trip, so like, we'll Baleclair, where I was born, was I think 16 miles from Belfast, yeah. so you had to get a bus, and then your parents, my my dad was from Belfast, but he was saying, like, you know, this was during the Troubles, so like, yeah. you know, I wouldn't set if there was, if there, I wouldn't send my 20-year-old son on a bus into Belfast during the yeah. Troubles, never mind a 14-year-old kid with his mate, <laughs> do you know what I mean, but you know, there we went, and we would go in, and we would, we would find a place, and we would we would go to Good Vibes first, and then we'd go to um, Caroline Music because Caroline Music was near the bus stop. Yeah. And then then we we'd come home with a little bag, and then we'd all go to somebody's house, and we would all listen to what we bought together. Oh, wonderful! I mean, it's it's really weird because
1: I mean, just the journey that you've explained there to buy a record and to and to be in a record shop, and you know, and exposed to music like and. And I'm always really mindful in this podcast not to teeter into sounding like a an old man going, "Well, it ain't how it used to be anymore." But there's definitely a value to them sort of journeys to buy a record, you know, because you could only afford one. However often you know you, you would go into the local record shop and and you would treasure that and you would play it, you know, A side, B side, study the cover. Well, I, well I'm talking about myself yeah. here. I would, I don't oh, know, yeah. and. Whereas you know, to go back to the first question I asked you about them constant distractions on streaming services mm-hmm. and that, you know, I, I, I do think you know it, it's it's a double edged sword. Like, but yeah, I, I do think there's something about a journey to to get a, a, a record and and to then sort of cherish that because you can't you, you haven't got anything else. Whereas now you've got everything, so I think
3: it devalues it a little. Do you know what I'm saying? No, no, exactly what you mean. I mean, I think the thing is, I mean, I. You know, I, I get it from having a, a 20-year-old son that's a uni that, like, he, he looks at all, four walls full of CDs and records and just goes, why? You know, because <laughs> it's, it's all the touch of a button for him. It's like, why Why would you want to bring this home and keep it here, Gathering Dust? But, you know, that was a big thing. Like, I mean, I remember every record that I bought. And you know, that's why, you know, you would know this is a poor Abraham cut on the sleeve and who wrote the run-out groove and, you know yeah you know we, we did know all that because we read sleeves and i mean i do miss that but at the same time you know i do listen to you know if i wanted to get the new album but i don't know rainbow grave or something like that and it's available to listen to right now sure. or i have to get like a 45 minute train journey up to the past i'm <laughs> listening to it right now <laughs> i'll order it online later on or I'll go and buy it whenever i'm next time but, yeah yeah
1: all right so um after school um I presume there was some, some clubbing and, and going to nightclubs. Um, so I want to know for uh, track five, please, Andy, what the song was that soundtracked your years. Going well, to um,
3: it was um, Sweet Soul Music by Arthur Connolly. And that was simply for the fact that that's – there was three clubs in Belfast at this point in time that we would go to. There was what they called the metal ring around the city centre. Because Belfast City Centre, which is you know, which is where all the clubs were, you would either go to Belfast or Bambridge or Coleraine or something. But Belfast was nearest to me and my mates, and there was a club called the Plaza, a club called the Delta, and a club called Tatters. And what they would do was they were they were in the what they called the metal rings. So Belfast City Centre used to have like football-style turnstiles <laughs> for you to get into. Because obviously there were so many bombings, they didn't want sure. they didn't in the pubs in the city centre to carnage and. So what, they, what somewhere like the plaza did was they got an, an abandoned old building, three stories high, and uh, they let the army would let you walk in with a carryout. So you would stop at an off-license and buy six, seven, eight cans of beer. You would go up uh, to the plaza in Belfast. They would let you in. There's three stories. There'd be a cloakroom. At the cloakroom, you gave them your carryout bag, and they would give you a ticket. So that was the bar, right? So you just went and showed your ticket, and they gave you one of your cans. Uh, and on, Well, the reason we started going there was because at the time we were all into kind of the birthday party and Southern Death Cult and stuff like that, and The Cure, yeah. the pornography film, and all my mates were into all that, and they had a floor that would play that, and then they had a top floor that would play Psychobilly, and then they had a bottom floor that would play Northern Soul and uh, and stuff like that, and, you know, when you're young, especially not, and we, would, we wouldn't just stay in the kind of Southern Death Cult birthday party goth floor, we would wander all over, and that I mean, that club sounds fucking amazing. I mean, no, it was. It was, open, <laughs> it was open to five or six in the morning. So what we would do, yeah. one of us would say, right, one of us is going to drive, the other three can drink. And you used to go there. No, no one ever really went to 11 o'clock at night. So you went to a friend's house, had a few drinks, went there, handed in your out stayed there to five in the morning. It was daylight when you came out and then you drove home. It was absolutely amazing. So was, there was a delta in the plaza that were quite similar, but everywhere everywhere seemed to have the same. Because there were old buildings in Belfast, Abandoned. they were able to have two or three floors and they always had like a sort of alternative rock gothy section but they always had one playing and tatters was where the dj david holmes used to play a lot there and he would play a lot of stuff like you know land of a thousand dances sweet soul music james brown and uh at this point in time we had a lot we got a lot of mates that we knew from the area we would meet there so you know we would bump into we would go there with their kind of back home spiky hair, waiting for like a uh, hanging garden by the cure to come on, so we could all get up and But we'd meet people that you know we knew <laughs> from the town that were there with like bomber jackets on and crew cuts, waiting for yeah, all the soul music to come on. Yeah, and I that was one song that they played everywhere, and it's like, yeah. and, and it was that kind of thing, you know, where we would all dance to it, you know, so was, yeah. you like and then we'd all be up, you know, like sort of like this Nick Cave of hair in the middle. Just <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, that could arguably be one of the greatest intros ever as well. What a start, oh, that well, Arthur well. Connolly. Like Brilliant <laughs> start to a record. Um, okay, um, for track six, uh, let's, let, let's Stay in Belfast. And um, a favourite track from an artist from your home county, please,
3: Andy. i would be Rudy, and, uh, Big Time. And that was... Rudy were... Everyone talked about them. So, I mean, at the time when we were kids... You know, Belfast did such... I mean, we cannot underestimate the importance of punk in Northern Ireland because, up, at, you know, whenever before punk came along, if I ever went into Belfast, you know, there were things like don't wear blue if you're going to this area, don't wear green if you're going to that area, you know, keep your mind shut about where you're from if you walk around. You had to be really careful. And punk was one of the things where no one gave toss where you came from or what your religious background was and it was very very anti-sectarian and, and quite unified so you know I would go and see bands like Susie and the Banshees the UK subs whatever up in Belfast and no one was fighting everyone looked you know everyone looked punk and everyone looked well, I remember the first time my dad dropped me off at a Susie and the Banshees concert he was like well, I'm not dropping him I'm not dropping him there look at the state of them ones. but they were really friendly it was that kind of, you know, the people that were going to give you a kick in with the people you know that looked like football casuals Yeah. But, uh, he sort of um, dropped, dropped you know, all those gigs, and the one band that everyone talked about was a band. And they did a song called Big Time, and it's far bigger than Stiff Little Fingers and then the Undertones, because they wrote amazing songs. The front man was kind of like Mark Bolan meets Richie Manick meets Keith Richards. You know, they uh, they were really poppy. Imagine, like, um, they, whenever I first heard Ash, for example, I thought yeah. that, that reminded me. Of Rudy. It was like very, very Northern Irish, but at the same time, incredibly catchy. And they had some amazing, again, any time you went to like see a punk band, the DJ between the acts, he would play, you know, Dead Kennedys and the dance, but he would always play Rudy songs as well. So everybody knew them. And most of the punks in Belfast, they would have Rudy painted somewhere in their biker jacket. But the thing, the most important thing for us was that, you know, if you went to a gig, you would see members of Rudy at the bar. So yeah. again, so it's taken it further away from that top of the pop thing with the glam rock. It humanized yeah. it and approachable for us. Yeah. And we, you know, if you'd have gone up and spoke to any members of Rudy or any of those bands, you yeah, Catherine and I like got they would have talked to you because they were in the they're in the crowd too. Yeah, and that was I mean the song Big Time. I, I don't know what it is. It's that it's a nor- it's like a thing from the north of Ireland for me. It's very much punk in Northern Ireland and Big Time. You ain't No friend of mine. And only a Northern Irish band could write that sentiment to probably the most catchiest tune, one of the catchiest tunes from 1978. And they always like, you know, I've made a, an art at school, you know, as a project, I made a Rudy T-shirt. I used to Rudy on the bottom of my baggy jacket. And they were legendary. But that was the thing for me. There was something, I suppose, that was pure about them. There was, there was no, um, the undertones were from Derry and they had Fergal Sharky. And Sarah Records wanted them, and Stiff Little Fingers were all really well known in the area because they'd all been in various bands. They're all incredibly good musicians, but Rudy were just this, there was a purity to them that I really liked.
1: I, I'd, I'd not heard of them until you sent your list over, and um, and, I, and I went and um, done a bit of prep and had a listen on that, and it, it does sound. Very much. I was curious to know when you said 1978. Then what 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 year that was? Mm-hmm. Like because it does just sound like pure Irish punk rock. Like yeah. man, it's so melodic as well.
3: Yeah, it is. I mean, they were they had a lot of bad luck. You know, they 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 were on Paul back to Paul Weller. Paul Weller sat, had a label called Jamming that he signed them to for a little while. I mean, the, the Jam. Oh took really? tour, Yeah, the Jam took Rudy on tour, and you know. By all accounts, it was really good success. The fans liked them all, but had so much bad luck and members left and they they lived in London for a while and then they came home and nothing really happened. But if you don't know if you've ever seen it, there's a really good film called Good Vibrations, which is the story of that scene. That's really good for anyone that doesn't know about Rudy or the Outcasts or the Good Vibrations label. Go and see that film, or,
1: or rent it. Experience. So, how's oh, the band in that? That's in
3: the film. That's Rudy. Rudy, that's Rudy. yeah. Rudy's in that. Right. The, band, the band obviously don't play themselves, but it's the two million Yeah, yeah, bands yeah of with, course, yeah, yeah. But the two main bands are Rudy and the Outcasts. Yeah, yeah. That's a great film. Yeah, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Okay,
1: right. You can play DJ now, and then it's the last song, and uh, and it's a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear.
3: Yeah, well, this is—I mean, obviously, this this is all about my formative years, so it's very much heavy. It's very much from the punk era, but therapy's been around a long time, and the, you know the things that influenced us were things like Big Black and Sonic Youth and Mud Honey and Public Enemy and Fugazi, so things that you know were a lot more um, updated on the punk side than, than what mm-hmm. I've just talked about. But you have know, always liked as a band electronic music. And we've always liked things like whether it's Belgian new beat, really early techno rave or, you know, stuff like that. But what, I, what happened to me was uh, it was a period in my life where I was getting very disillusioned with music and a, a period of, of illness. It was about 2007. And I read a review in, I think, The Guardian by the journalist Kitty Empire of the first burial album. And I went out and got it. And it was absolutely amazing, and I was completely obsessed. But it's just it was, it was like another world, and it was it reminded yeah. me of being a kid again, where I could put my headphones on and listen to music from start to finish, and a bit like earlier on, we talked about that journey of the bus. Yeah. One thing I think that a lot of kids miss out on a lot is the journey of an album. Yeah, where you like London Calling, where you don't just put on London Calling and then skip through tracks; you listen to the yeah. whole level album. Exile on Main Street, you know, Joy Division, Unknown Pleasures. And I think with Burial, the first and second Burial, the, the, the second record on True for me was just I could escape with that record. You know, at the time I was ill and all I would do would be put the headphones on for a walk. But it was something made of Joy Division. It reminded me of Black Sabbath. And it reminded me of all the best kind of early electronic records that I like, Guy Called Gerald and stuff like that. Yeah. I
1: listen to. It's it's stark, it's quite cold. It's like it's it's, it's I, I can definitely hear what you're saying in regards to Guy Called Gerald and, and Joy Division and yeah. things like that. It's uh it's headphone music as well. That album you yeah. like Untrue, that's that's for the headphones. It's yeah. incredible, incredible record.
3: Yeah, and it's yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah.
1: And so you you, you you spoke there about um, records being listened to uh, in their entirety as, as, as you know as a journey. So when you write now and 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 there's new therapy albums and, and we talk about how earlier um, music can be, you know, quite I won't, I won't use the word disposable, but there's there's constant distractions, you know, where people just go on iTunes and cherry pick tunes. Do you still write an album as a body of work to be listened to as
3: an album? We try to, and it doesn't always work. I mean, after the whole, after I discovered Barra, we did two albums called Crooked Timber and A Brief Crack of Light that were really influenced by that and a lot of the music on Hyperdub. And they are designed to be listened to as a whole because, you know, there's not really any standout singles on those records and they're very much, a lot of therapy fans find them quite difficult. But they, a lot of people that got and went, oh, God, I, I listened to that record the way through. But I suppose what we do look for is a uniformity, because uh, part of our eclecticism that we've developed ever since we were kids and we started the band sometimes is our worst enemy. Because, you know, we will, I mean, we're a rock band. We use bass, guitar, drums, vocals, you know, we don't use any electronics in the sound or anything but we take elements from all different music. And sometimes if we discover, say, a dub track, we'll try and emulate it and it will backfire. It won't sit nicely with the other songs. So it is something that we do try and do. We, we do. I mean, that's why we leave tracks off albums and stuff like that, because they maybe don't sit. The, the last album we did, Cleave, we there was three or four tracks we didn't put on that because you know it was meant to be a sort of high-energy rock album, and we, we left off the tracks that maybe upset the pattern of that a little bit. But I find that incredibly difficult to do. That's always one of the, I mean, once we, well, say we record, I don't know, 14 songs for a 10-track album, it's trying to get the sequence right. In the uh, Back to what you were saying earlier on about the intro of a track, I mean, the opening track on the album is really, really important in a way because it's got to be someone that makes you want to go, oh, hello, you know, I'm going to say this, yeah. And you cannot often, the easy thing to do is pick the one that you think everyone's going to like. Yeah. That's not always the case. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so when
1: uh, lockdown lifts and um, we get back to whatever sort of routine and normality, it, you know, it, whatever normality is going to present itself, what's, what's in the uh, – what's, what's lying in the future for, 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 for Andy and therapy?
3: Well, we had um, – we already had an incredible amount of work that was meant to sell it to this year 2020 – yeah, 2020 is our 30th anniversary – so we were going to do two 30th anniversary tours to go on. We did a um, Greatest Hits Live at Abbey Road album as well, which had just come out and it got into the top 40. So we thought, oh, this is looking really great. And then the whole thing happened. But, you know, things are more important than that at the moment. So what we have done is basically transport it, all that to next year. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll be doing two European tours, lots of festivals, next year what we are doing this year is we are writing new material for our next album which we will record when we get a chance but the idea is to have like 14 15 songs there's a book coming out uh simon young that used to be the editor of Kerrang, has written the official biography called so much for the 30-year plan and that comes out on jawbone press in september um but the as far as i know we've talked to our agent and our management we won't be setting foot on a stage until march april you know there was talk of maybe going back in December so the plan will be if we're allowed to go into the recording studios in December that's when we'll record a new album yeah but then all of next year to a certain extent we'll be celebrating our 30th anniversary in the 31st year if that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> and so
1: if uh people want to find out and, and keep up to speed on everything that's that that's coming up where's the best place to go to
3: www.therapy?co.uk uh, and then that's got the links to the Instagram and everything else as well and uh,
1: Twitter. Wonderful. And if you all right with you when when we put this out, um, we'll tag you in all the posts on the socials and stuff. No, please do. And, uh, and lovely. Let us know everything that we can do, and we'll put it up. Yeah. Oh, amazing, Andy. Thank you so much for your time today, mate. It's been an absolute joy. Thank oh, you all. Well, thanks for
3: helping
1: me. <laughs> oh, mate, it's on been an side, absolute mate. pleasure. Yeah. All right, thanks, thanks mate there you go. I told you at the beginning, that was an amazing conversation. Um, and it was such a shame right at the very end when we were saying goodbye, that the, there was actually a a clap of thunder, uh, and it made my computer, um, sort of Wi-Fi stagger and, 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 uh, and yeah, so there was that kind of awkward glitch at the end, but, um, yeah, but it was an absolute pleasure to get to sit and, and chat to Andy and what an interesting episode that was. Um, Okay, again, we're back next week. So, uh, in the meantime, as mentioned at the beginning, go and have a rummage in the archives uh, of the previous episodes and see who see you tickles your fancy over there. Um, and if you want more than that, as I said as well at the beginning, there is a Patreon page um, which has standalone episodes. Find out about everything at offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing, www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fair Wear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk. Official sponsors of Off the Beaten Track Podcast. It's Off the Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me stew with him,
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen